tonight we're going to be looking at John chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the, the first 17 verses there. So John chapter 15. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if you knew that you had only a few hours left to live, what would you want to say to those you loved most? For most of us, I imagine, we would want to comfort them. When time is short, each word seems precious, and so wanting to waste none, I imagine you would want to speak of the most important matters. Whether they're believers or not, you would want to tell them to look to Christ. In our text, Jesus is the one who was about to be taken from his disciples, and his words of comfort to them are still his words of comfort to us today. Let's begin with a bit of context. After having spent the first 11 chapters of the Gospel of John, tracing out the entire life and ministry of Jesus up to this point, midway through chapter 12, the scene narrows and the pace begins to slow dramatically. In the city of Jerusalem, the city of kings, the city of David, Jesus had arrived to triumphant cries of Hosanna, the crowds cried out to their Messiah King, who came not dressed for war, but riding upon the colt of a donkey. 
The Passover feast had been prepared away from the bustle of the crowds, which had swelled Jerusalem for the Passover celebrations. Jesus and the 12 disciples had gathered together in the upper room. Now, we know what was about to happen. Now, these are the final hours before Jesus' arrest. We know that the cross is looming, and so did Jesus. But his disciples did not. As we move into the upper room discourse of chapters 13 to 17, the foreknowledge of Jesus of all that was about to occur is noted already in the very first verse of chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What followed was the washing of the disciples' feet by Jesus and the sending out of Judas Iscariot as the betrayer. You could say that from the moment that Judas left the door, the pieces were in motion and a stopwatch began to tick away the final hours leading to the crucifixion. Calling the remaining 11 disciples little children, Jesus tells them that he's about to leave and that where he's going, they cannot follow. Evidently perplexed in chapter 14, the disciples reveal their lack of understanding and Jesus comforts them with the promise that he will not leave them as orphans. You can almost picture the the pained confusion. What is Jesus saying? And into that confusion, Jesus promises the helper, the Holy Spirit who would help them to understand. As the conversation continued, precious time was passing. The cross was looming. Surely you can sense the urgency. Into the disciples' confusion, the surpassing love of Christ is seen in how Jesus met their alarm with words of loving comfort. We are going to look at the surpassing love of Christ in three key points. Firstly, in the verses 1 to 8, I'd like us to see the surpassing love of Christ and the new identity of the believer. Secondly, in verses 9 to 14, we're going to see the surpassing love of Christ and its expression, its fullest expression. And thirdly, in the verses 15 to 17, we'll see the believer's response to the surpassing love of Christ. First then, the new identity of the believer. A new phase in the discourse begins as we take up our text in John 15. And if you'll look with me there, at the very first verse, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. What is the significance here? It isn't a long sentence, but we can't afford to miss any words if we're going to properly understand. Note that Jesus calls himself the true vine, and his father is the vine dresser. The word true, as well as the imagery of the vine and the vine dresser, would not have been new concepts to the disciples. This is an illustration that was loaded with Old Testament precedent. In multiple places in the Old Testament, the vine is directly tied to the nation of Israel, the covenant corporate people of God, and God is portrayed as the vine dresser. One example, and there are several, we're going to look at two. One example is Psalm 80, verses 8 to 9, which reads, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it 
It took root and filled the land. In Isaiah 5, the imagery is taken further. Again, Israel is the vine and God is the vine dresser. But as God states in verse 4, what more is there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Israel stood as covenant breakers, deserving only the judgment of God. If you're familiar with the history of Israel, you are aware of their heartbreaking failure time and again to remain faithful to their covenant with the Lord. Israel had shown themselves utterly incapable of meeting the law's demands. But let's not allow ourselves to think even for a minute that this is only an Old Testament problem. No, as Paul could say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A wedge was driven between holy God and sinful man that Israel could never overcome. In every age, if man stands alone, he stands justly condemned before God as a covenant breaker. Into that broken relationship between God and man, Jesus came. See that the entire Old Testament pointed to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. The Old Testament always looked ahead to this. When Jesus calls himself the true vine, he's stepping in to mend the rend in the relationship between God and man that man could never restitch. No one else in history could have truthfully said what Jesus says here. Essentially, Jesus is saying that he is the continuation of Israel. He's the fulfillment, the true and the better vine. Where in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was to draw in the nations to bring true worship to God. Now Jesus is that vine, but one without blemish or failure. From then on, salvation for Jew and Gentile would be found in this true vine alone. The old system marked by sacrifice and ceremony had always been a shadow of what was to come. And now it was here in the person of Jesus, dawning in the brightness of the new covenant. In this night of confused sorrow for the disciples, Jesus speaks words of incredible comfort. Let's return to the illustration of the vine. We know that Jesus is the vine and the father is the vine dresser. But what about the branches? To avoid any confusion, let's deal immediately with the verses two and six. There we are told, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And by extension in verse six, we see that there are branches that are cast away and burned. And there is a strong warning here. And when scripture warns, we must be warned. And this warning is heavy. To ignore it means eternal death. But what's the warning for? As Christians, we don't need to shy away here. This warning is actually a lifeline for us. And here we can see the surpassing love of Christ. It's like a lighthouse in a storm, drawing in both the saved and the unsaved away from the rocks that would destroy them and into the safe harbor of Christ. Whether you are saved or unsaved, you've been a believer your whole life, or this is your very first day, these warnings should drive us to him. Who are the branches then that are cast away? 
Remember the context. Judas had just left to betray his Lord. He was numbered with the 12. Just as being one of the 12 did not mean Judas was part of the vine, so simply going through the motions does not mean anyone is united to Christ. These branches are those who only appear to follow, who want Christ only for his benefits, but have no true love for him and in the end fall away. Here's the warning. If you search yourself and see no marks of being a genuine follower of Christ, no genuine love for him, you are in peril. So what is the only answer? It's always the same. Repent and turn to Christ. Cry out to him. Ask for the faith to believe and know that he will receive all who come to him imploring his grace. Congregation, if you do have a love for Jesus, these castaway branches do not describe you. They do not describe you. If you do love Christ, you do abide in him. Salvation is assured for though you are weak and we all are, Jesus cannot fail. But yet, let this warning cause you to treasure your Savior all the more and drive you into the everlasting arms of Christ. With that, let's turn to the branches that are truly in Christ. The branches that bear fruit. Well, it isn't until verse 5 that Jesus clarifies his illustration. We need to recognize that it is the disciples of Christ who are the branches in Christ. And the same holds true today. Those who love and follow Jesus have a place on the vine and are invited into the comfort of this illustration, the comfort of having their identity found in Christ. We cannot miss the work of the father here as the vine dresser. See the loving concern that the father has for his people and take note. Every branch in Christ that bears fruit will be pruned. I imagine many of you know what pruning is. Maybe you've even tried an amateur's hand at pruning a tree or a plant. When done well, a tree or plant will become healthier, redirecting its energy into growing taller, growing fuller, bearing more fruit. Done poorly, and your plant will never be the same. As a young and I'll qualify, a very young child, I attempted to prune my mother's Christmas cactus. And even now, I remember that it was a marvelous specimen and one that my mother had taken excellent care of for years. Unfortunately, on that day, as is true of, I suppose, many other days, a child with a pair of scissors equated to a botanist's worst nightmare. My poor mother found me happily snipping away Branches strewn all across the living room, leaving about only about 10% of a stump where that once magnificent Christmas cactus had once stood. Now, I sure am thankful for a mother's unwavering love, but I can assure you that poor Christmas cactus was never the same again. But how different is the pruning work of our Heavenly Father? Into the ruined mess of our lives, he works with dedicated love, never misunderstanding what needs to be cut away from our hearts. 
And we need to get this. In pursuit of our sanctification, we as Christians will be pruned. And yes, at times pruning will hurt. Sin and sinful habits run all too deep. And at times we may even feel a bit like that tiny stump of a Christmas cactus. Like we've been cut just a bit too far back. Congregation, do you ever find yourself grappling with the difficulty of God's pruning in your life? Realize that the Father prunes with perfect skill and has your further good in mind. He never comes simply to make a mess of your life. God takes no delight in suffering, but his pruning is to help us grow in nearness to Christ and to bear fruit in usefulness for his kingdom. So what is this fruit? This fruit is what will characterize the life of someone who is abiding in Christ. J.C. Ryle offers a helpful definition here. He says, He that would know what the word fruit means need not wait long for an answer. Repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, holiness of life and conduct. These are what the New Testament calls fruit. So, what should we be looking for to be encouraged in our walk with Christ? What should we be asking God to help us grow in daily? First, daily repentance, increasing faith in Christ, growth in sanctification, and the tangible change in how one lives their life. In brief, we will desire to grow in holiness. When we become true branches in the vine, our identity changes and we go from death to life. Is this change of identity or growth going to come from us? Is it going to come in our own strength? No. And we know that it couldn't. We know ourselves well enough. It's not going to come from us. Here in this analogy of the vine, Jesus is saying, I've done what you could not do. I've done what Israel could not do. But I've done it for you. And I've done it on your behalf. See the surpassing love of Christ. Moving from death to life, he gives us as branches a new identity. If you would look at your Bibles again with me, in verse four, you'll see the first of many instances of the word abide, or also often translated remain. And both words capture the sense of of what's going on here. In the Greek, This first abide is what we call an imperative verb. I don't want to go too deep here, but basically an imperative verb is best understood as a command with some force behind it. It's not merely a suggestion. You're intended to take this seriously. So the command reads, abide or remain in me and I in you. This call to abide, you'll see it all throughout our our verses here. It's at the heart of our passage today. But what does it mean to abide? Obviously, we need to know what Jesus is commanding if we're going to obey him. To begin, we need to see that abiding requires an absolute reliance on Christ. You must recognize that you are unable to be saved apart from the atoning work of Christ. 
Just as the branch can do nothing without the vine, so the believer can do nothing apart from Christ. The vine gives nutrients to the branches, and the branches rely on the vine for life. You've, you've seen this. Experience can bear it out. If you chop off a branch, it will wither and it will die. Yet, this is also an abiding that is founded on and sealed by the love of Christ. Knowing the love of Christ should change our affections to draw ever nearer to him, to want to walk closer to him. It becomes the cry of the Christian's heart, the very goal of our lives, the aroma of our service. We desire to know him, to love him, to obey him, and all that he says to us in his word. As Sinclair Ferguson aptly puts it, in a nutshell, abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affections. And so we see the command, abide in me and I in you. Let me be clear. Jesus is not saying, if you abide in me, if and only if, then and only then will I abide in you. If that were the case, not one of us would have any hope of abiding in Christ. Yet there is a weightiness here. We should not just skim over this. When someone comes to saving faith, that's not the end of the Christian life. But let's recall again that this comes in the context of Jesus offering comfort to his disciples. This is a command that's full of life-giving benefit to the believer. Would you have comfort? Abide. Make it your life's aim to know and love Jesus. The idea of a Christian who feels no desire to grow in holiness or in closeness to Christ reveals that something vital is missing. So what are we to think of this command? We begin to ask, but Jesus, how? How can we do that? We are so weak. One commentator helpfully explains the words abide in me do not constitute a condition which man must fulfill in his own power before Christ will do his part. Far from it. It is sovereign grace from start to finish. But the responsibility of abiding in Christ is placed squarely upon man's shoulders, exactly where it belongs. Without exertion, there is no salvation. But... But, and this is crucial, the power to exert oneself and to persevere is God-given. Grace is not diminished in the least. Verse 7 gives us all the more encouragement. Ask, and it will be done for you. This asking in prayer, is the prayer of a believer who has their heart changed and their mind renewed to be looking to Christ and treasuring his word. This is an invitation to ask for help from the Lord in drawing near, to help you abide. This is asking according to the will of the Lord. See that such prayers are pleasing to the Lord. Do you feel small, like your faith wavers, like you go up and down, Pray, for God hears 
and cares for your soul. Here's the Christian's identity and hope. Christ is all. Christ is at the forefront. As Hebrews 12, 2 reminds us, we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. In the illustration of the vine and the invitation to abide, Jesus is offering perspective to his disciples. He's about to physically leave them, but he's pointing them to their only hope. And that hope is Jesus himself. If they will remain with him and he will help them do this, hell itself can rage against them. It can rage against us. And yet, We need not fear. Having been given a new identity in Christ, in our second point, I'd like us to to work through, to marvel at the surpassing love of Christ and its, its expression, its fullest expression in the love of Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, have you ever felt distant from the Lord? Maybe this past year has been a particular trial for you. Maybe you feel like darkness is on every side and you just feel tired of pressing on. For the weary soul, let the words of verse 9 wash over you. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. See with what a love you've been loved. Here's a statement so rich, so full, that I I don't think we're able to get this. We can't wrap our minds around it. This is the kind of statement that the Puritan writers would wring a four to six hundred page book out of. It's the kind of statement that, that just inevitably must leave us in awe. What kind of a love is this? A love from eternity? A love that's altogether perfect? And yet Jesus uses that love beyond equal, beyond comprehension as the prime model of his love for his disciples, for you and for me. As verse 11 triumphantly shouts, joy, joy indeed, as we come near, as mere dust before our God, here is rest for our souls on a wave-tossed ocean of cares. Before all else, we need to see the love of Christ for you. We can never get tired of this. We should never get tired of hearing the gospel undeserved and yet given to us. Unworthy and yet loved with such a love. How can I even begin to draw out the mystery and the depths of such a love as is shared between father and son from all eternity? For just a moment, let's pause here as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The love of Christ changes us, and it does so in every area of our lives. In verse 12 and 17, you can see that Jesus leaves his disciples another commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. This commandment is important and we'll only know how to love each other when we first know the love of Christ and learn to love him above all. 
So let's look to the all-surpassing love of Christ. The next question we should be asking is a fairly obvious one. If we're commanded to love like Christ, as Christ has loved, how does he love? We must recognize that Jesus doesn't just tell the disciples to love one another and leave it there. This is not just, hey, everyone, be kind to each other. Full stop. No, he uses his love as the example. If any of us here were to say, love as I have loved, it would ring quite hollow. Our love is so infrequently worth emulating. But when Jesus says this, what are we to think? Here we need to see that Christ has loved and continues to love us with a perfect, sinless love. His disciples had seen this love on display all throughout his ministry. Yet now, as he's speaking, the cross is looming. As if to clarify any confusion, in verse 13, Jesus tells us, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And we need to get this. Willingly, our Savior left the glory of heaven He added humanity to himself in the incarnation. He lived a life of utter humiliation. He was mocked and rejected by mankind, hated beyond any other. And yet we're told, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What joy is this? And how quickly we cry out that we've been treated unjustly. But was ever any ever treated more unjustly than our Lord and our Savior? Here he is, willingly laying down his life to pay the death price for your sin, for my sin, but it's not his sin. And yet, joy. What joy. Christ's joy was found in bringing all glory to his Father by, rede- by redeeming sinners like you and me. As Paul can express in awe-filled wonder, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a love that none of us deserves to receive. A love so amazing that it seems almost, almost too good to be true. This is the love that we are to have in view as our standard of loving each other. He came for this. See the heart that he still has for the broken. To all who hear his words, he says in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Seeing our sin, recognizing we deserve hell, and then seeing Christ beckon for us to come How can we not wonder? How can we not wonder who? Me? Even me? After all that I've done? 
And yet the answer is clear and the answer is the same every time. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you're here today and you have not yet come to know Christ, I implore you not to wait. If you're waiting to fix up your own life before you dare to approach, you never will. You cannot be saved by your own attempts at appeasing him. And you don't know what tomorrow will bring. But know this, Christ came for the broken, that is sinners. At the cross, sin was paid for. Christ has done all for us and he stands ready to clear our debt of sin. At the cross of Calvary, we see surpassing love offered to a dying world. That love is offered to all mankind. The offer goes out to all who may hear without distinction and it goes out now to you, no matter how broken. Repent and believe. For salvation purchased at the price of his perfect life and blood is offered freely through Jesus Christ. Unworthy? Yes, all of us. We come to Christ as broken sinners. We continue on, still weak, still struggling, but a saint, but a saint redeemed forever. And it's all because of the love of Christ. And this is the love that we are setting as the standard to follow. We're talking about a countercultural love that will leave us in awe for eternity. The love of Christ is utterly undeserved. It brings us from death to life. And here's the paradox. Apart from Christ, you're dead, even while you draw breath. But in Christ, even when you die, you are alive in him. Not for a moment, but for all eternity. But note also that there's an exclusivity here. If you look at our passage, there is no other vine. There's only Jesus. And he invites you to abide with him now and forever. What response should this draw from us? Surely, surely awe, surely thanksgiving. After all, what makes you different than anyone else? It's all, all grace. And it's all through the work of Christ. The unearnable, undemandable, undeserved free gift of God. Kings in their splendor and slaves in their poverty may cry out together, if I have Christ, I have all. Surely there is nothing more that our hearts could desire than to love and obey this Savior. He is altogether worthy of your life your love, and all that you are. We are to be those who love Christ first. And by that I mean, we are those who are to love Christ above everything. Then out of that first love, your love for each other will flow. I'm not telling you to love Christ just so that you can have a better life. I'm not saying that at all. Although, very likely, that would be true. No, what I'm saying is that all of us need to love Christ for who he 
is. It's the reason we exist. It's the reason we have any hope whatsoever. More than jobs, more than hobbies, more than money or houses or even each other, Christ must be loved above everything. Having seen this love, let's turn to our final point. The believer's response to the surpassing love of Christ. Sometimes in a passage, the application lies so close to the surface, you really don't need to pull out the shovel and start digging to find it. In this case, you need to be basically blind to miss it. There it is in verse 12 and repeated again in verse 17. Love one another. Love one another. How? It all comes back to Jesus. As I have loved you. Let me be clear. When Jesus calls for love between his disciples, between us, all of us here as believers, he does not nullify the first and the greatest commandment. No, of course, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. If this first love is not present, you will never attain to the second, loving your neighbor as yourself. This love for each other is something Jesus wanted his disciples to understand. It was to be a mark of what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. And this directly ties into the analogy of the vine and the branches and is a command that Jesus gives to those who are abiding Remember, this is all in the context of offering perspective and comfort to the disciples who are in the early stages of having their world as they knew it come crashing down around them. Yes, God had a plan. We probably all know what was still going to happen. The book of Acts helps unfold it. You can look at church history. You can see where we are to this present day. But... The context in delivering this message of comfort is important. The disciples didn't know all that. And this was one of the essentials which Jesus wanted them to get before he would go to the cross. Back in chapter 13, verse 35, which is the start of uh, the upper room discourse, Jesus had said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. It was a command for the moment, but it was also a command for the future, a command that we are to continue to enjoy today, that all may see that we are the fruit-bearing branches of Christ. And so, we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. Now, if reflecting on the love of Christ for you leaves you wondering how on earth you could ever love anyone to that degree. Let me put it in perspective for you. In just a few words, it's impossible. You can't. You won't. But let's not stop there. No, we will not attain to the same depth of love that Christ has for us. But that shouldn't deflate us. Far from it. As the Apostle John says in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. When we understand that the love of Christ given to us, um, when we understand that love, it is then that we're able to love each other best 
And it's then that you'll find you'll actually want to love one another. So how are we to love as Christ has loved? See that Jesus gives this command to love each other and then immediately gives the greatest form of it, a willingness to lay down our lives for our friends, something that Jesus has done for us on the cross. This is a commendation to love in the highest degree, a love that is as strong as death. By implication then, every smaller form of love is intended. Think about it. If you're willing to die for someone, would you be willing to give them a kidney? Would you be willing to weep with them when someone they love dies? Would you be willing to cook up a batch of soup and and drop it off if somebody's sick? Or even in the daily household chores, would you pick your loved one's socks up off the ground without complaint? I think you get the point. And this is something that can happen way too easily in our daily lives. It's that idea that crops up in our minds. And whether you're a kid or you're an adult, we've all been there. Well, I washed the dishes yesterday, so she should wipe the counters. Or I just walked the dog, so she should have to do it tomorrow. I could go on and on. You all have a thousand, no, more than million, million opportunities for pettiness in your daily life every single day. But if your life becomes about keeping score of who owes the other a favor, or who's been doing more housework, or even who has wronged you, you've missed the point. Because we are selfish, loving each other is hard. And if we're honest, if we take a good look, we're not always that lovable ourselves. And that's why it's so important for us to keep the love of Christ always before us. Remember, abiding in Christ means a longing after holiness, to be like Jesus, to reflect his love. The closer we abide with Christ, the more selfishness dies, and you'll want to serve each other selflessly. You'll want to love each other. And this isn't just romantic love for married couples. No, this is to mark the entire body of believers, a love for each other, a love between all of you who are here, a love between a congregation and a love for the church of Christ. And it's all because of the identity altering love of Christ. Many years after that evening in the upper room, the comfort and command of Jesus still warmed the heart of the apostle Peter. I find this fascinating. See what he says in first Peter four, verse eight to 10. He says, above all, he prefaces it, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very varied grace. Peter is saying emphatically, if you love Christ, you must love his bride with all her imperfections, with all her failures and her faults, 
Why? Because Christ died for her. Because he loves her. And he died for you and for the person sitting beside you in the pew. Further, we're all different. God has given gifts to you that he hasn't given to other brothers and sisters here. Peter is saying, you've been given different gifts. Use them as you love each other. Now you can do this in a million different ways. And if you have your eyes open for opportunity, you'll find them everywhere. Kids, teens, singles, seniors, parents, non-parents, everyone. This command is for you all. As you seek to love each other, can you cook or bake? I guarantee you that there is someone in this congregation who would be thankful for a meal or even just a night off. Do you have a knack for cars? Make it known that you're willing to lend a hand if there's a need. Do you have a good storytelling voice? Make an offer to do a story time over Zoom for the kids. There's probably a few moms who would appreciate that. Kids, and there's more of you here than there were earlier, but kids, can you draw pictures or write cards? It's a simple thing. Send them to people in your congregation. You have no idea how much of an encouragement it is to an adult to receive a card from a child, from a kid, from a teen, from anyone. I know it's maybe not done so much today, but take the time. It really, really does mean something. Show your love in tangible ways. To all of you, I would go further. Intentionally ask each other how it goes with your souls and be in prayer for each other. Whatever your gifts, use them to love one another and so reflect the surpassing love of Christ. Well, a sermon on the next section will need to wait for another day. And if you look at it, 18 on is basically setting all of this in the context of what the disciples are going to face. I'm offering no spoilers when I say that this command to love one another was set in the expectation of suffering, suffering for the sake of Christ. Do you feel the scorn of the world? Do you see their delight when someone of prominence within the church falls? Let's get closer to home. Are you surprised by the temptation to sin? Brothers and sisters, this world offers a near infinite number of distractions to keep you from Christ. To divert your attention into anything and everything that would separate you from him. It wants to have you, not because it loves you, but because it hates Christ. We need each other to remind each other of our new identity to encourage each other to stand firm in difficult times. See then the wise provision of this command of our Savior to love one another. Allow me just a minute to address a hard point. And I say this with great weightiness. Brothers and sisters, if we fight against each other over secondary things, 
we have failed to meet the command of Christ. And I don't say that flippantly. I will be the first to admit that this is a difficult time. This past year has stretched many of us to the breaking point. But if we cannot see the fact that we have one Lord, one Savior, one shared identity as those who've been redeemed by Christ, I fear we will have utterly blunted our usefulness as a witness to the world of what the love of Christ looks like. Brothers and sisters, you cannot love Christ and hate your brother. It's an impossibility. Scripture says as much. No, regardless of your position on masks or government policy, keep the love of Christ first. I implore you, do not lose the love that should mark you as brothers and sisters cleansed by the blood of Christ. Bear with each other. Love each other truly. Be quick to forgive. And if tension does exist between any of you, seek to be reconciled. I know it's been a long and a hard year that opinions are varied and it is tricky. And so many of us are just deeply tired. Dear friends, all the more reason to look to Jesus and to bask in the wonder of his surpassing love. Keep these times in perspective. COVID will last for a time, but heaven is going to go on forever. Brothers and sisters, it's all about Christ. Keep your eyes on him. For we await a future hope, a hope that is a reality, a reality, a reality that will one day be sight. You will look upon the one that you have loved your whole life long, and you will see your Savior. In all your weakness and tears, the one who has never failed you, who has preserved you, who's never let you go. One day, we will behold him who has loved us with a surpassing love. Dearly beloved, as you go into a new week, look to the love of Christ and take heart, for he is risen. He has overcome Abide with him and know that he abides with you now until that great day. Till then, may it be our prayer, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God, as we come to you in prayer, we ask that you would impress upon us now that unless you hold on to us, we die. Capture our hearts afresh. Keep us from dullness and grant us a great and genuine love for you and for each other. Keep our eyes from what would hinder us and may they instead be turned to you. May there be peace within these walls. Abide with us. May your love be ever before us and may you lead us ever on. With humble heart we pray in the name of our gentle Savior. Come, Lord Jesus. 
come quickly. Amen.